Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling one 780 7277 Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of life Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook under LDS Leadership Principles. You can find this podcast at mormondiscussion.podbean.com as well as on iTunes. We also have our blog, themormondiscussion.blogspot.com. On this episode of Mormon Discussion... We talked to Stephen C. Harper, who's a professor of church history and doctrine at BYU. He has written several books and has contributed to the Joseph Smith Papers Project. He has written the book Joseph Smith's First Vision, a guide to the historical accounts, which is the backdrop of our interview today. And now we go to our interview with Brother Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks very much, Bill. Good, good. Glad to have you on. I uh, was reading your book about a month ago or so, and was thinking about uh, the first vision and some of the issues that come up as we talk about the various accounts and some of the questions that people have uh, regarding those, and just uh, wanted to approach you and see if we could sit down and have a a chance just to talk for a little bit. My podcast, uh, maybe you know this, my podcast is designed towards those who who have uh, a struggle of faith, who who try to overcome the challenges of, of doubts that, that are present with them. And, and they're going to find this to be a, a wonderful interview. And so I'm grateful that you're on. I'm grateful I wanted for the work to, that you're doing there. It's important. Thank you. I want to just start off, if you don't mind, for those listeners who don't uh, know who you are, would you mind sharing just a, a brief a few thoughts maybe on just giving some background on who you are? Yeah. Uh, the line that originally or that always comes to mind when someone asks that is that line from The Princess Bride where – he says, who are you? And the answer is, no one of consequence. Right. So that's how I feel. Uh, I'm a kid from southern Idaho who uh, has never been the smartest in the class or anything like that. But I'm currently employed by the church history department in Salt Lake City. I work at the church history library. And uh, I spent 10 years teaching uh, church history and doctrine, two at BYU-Hawaii and and um uh, ten years at uh, BYU and Provo before coming up to the Church History Library. Do you happen to know Brian Whitney? Uh, yeah, I do actually. I do. I've just recently made his acquaintance. Gotcha. Brian is the gentleman I had an interview with uh, some time back, and so my my listeners are very familiar with who Brian is, and uh, just need to make that connection. Let's uh, let's jump into some questions. I've got essentially eleven questions I wanted to ask you about the first vision. And your book, which is Joseph Smith's First Vision, A Guide to the Historical Accounts, it's this book that I want to kind of use as the backdrop of, of some of these questions that uh, that my listeners will have. Uh, the first one I wanted to ask you is how – when we when we look at um, the first vision, one of the things that those who are critical of the church want to point out is the whole surprise feature that there are – multiple uh, versions of the first vision, and that seems to catch members um, off guard. How do you think the critics use surprise um, to catch the members, and, and why does it happen mm-hmm. that way? Why 
why is that something that members are aren't aware of? Is that is that a fair a, question? Yeah, it's a fair question. I I asked Dean Jesse, uh, who is a fantastic scholar of the accounts and of Joseph Smith's papers. I asked him a few years ago what he thought about this whole issue. Why are some saints uh, kind of jarred or surprised and uh, by by learning that there are more than there's more than one account historical account of the first vision? He gave a wry smile and he said, "Well, perhaps they were more inclined to read." So for for you know 40 years uh the church has publicized and published these accounts beginning when they discovered the others beginning in the 1960s Dean Jesse published in BYU studies Jim Allen published uh, an article about them in the church's newspaper or magazine which was the improved Neris, before the enzyme magazine even existed BYU studies has published them repeatedly in the book as well as in the periodical. And I think, therefore, it's a matter of the saints being too passive sometimes. And I don't, I, when I say the saints, I don't mean to blanket everyone, but there are many Latter-day Saints who, I don't know, they have assumptions, I guess, about what the church is supposed to do and what Sunday school is supposed to be. And I figure if they haven't heard everything there is to know in Sunday school, they, you know, there's something wrong there. And the danger of that is that the critics learn to play on that, on the ignorance. And the critics are very, very good at insinuation. So they drop a line that's laced with some facts, and they do it with a kind of insinuation in the tone. So did you know that there's more than one account of the first vision? Well, everything depends on how I say that, how I present that, right? I tell that to my students, and and without the insinuation, without the intended or implied meaning of, oh, there's some reason to be suspicious about this, then it doesn't make you suspicious. It doesn't make you wonder if the church is still true. Um, So it's a historical fact, and the way you present facts and the other material that you surround them with makes all the difference. And for people who are struggling with this, what they need is the facts. What they need is someone to show them what all the evidence is and help them, therefore, become equipped to figure out what the evidence means, how it should be interpreted. What the critics do is give you some of the facts, but then they they lace that with interpretation. And for many people, they don't have the skills to discern the difference. And uh, they often end up then sort of troubled beyond what what's needful if they had just somebody who was more friendly to their face, gotcha. giving them the facts along with uh, the tools to understand what they might mean. Excellent, excellent. What uh, in your experience? Why did the church out of and first off, you made a great point of the fact that some of these accounts didn't even come out till the 1960s, which makes it difficult to to make the assumption that these should have been there all along because they're just recently discovered documents by the church themselves, correct? Right. Yes, that's right. So out of all these accounts, assuming that there's a, at least four or five of these accounts that the church has been aware of, what caused the church, from your point of view, to just focus on one account and make it the official account? Oh, that's a good question. I'm trying to figure out the answer to that myself. Um, and so tentatively, at least, we can say that that goes all the way back to Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith is the one who privileged that account. Uh, the one we mean is the one that's excerpted in the Pearl of Great Price. So this is the first account that Joseph Smith ever publishes in his lifetime. Um, gotcha. And he, it will be republished in the Deseret News. It will be become part of the history of the church. It's It's Joseph Smith's effort to make his history now the earliest account we know of, an 1832 account, was kind of his initial effort to do that. But for reasons I don't entirely understand, he he seems to have suppressed that version. And I don't mean something sinister there. I mean the same thing I might do with an early draft of a, a book or a chapter I wanted to write. Uh, I don't think he liked it. Now, it's become quite fashionable. A lot of Latter-day Saints really like the earliest account because it's quite evangelical. It's quite, um, uh, it's all about salvation by Christ, which is lovely and certainly plays well in our current environment. And 
The other one is somewhat off-putting to people. It has God saying all their creeds are an abomination and the professors are corrupt and so on, and it's quite defensive. And so uh, for that, for those reasons, I believe it's a little less fashionable in um, some circles today. But Joseph Smith clearly favored the one that he wrote, at least beginning in 1838. The version of it that we have was written in 1839 with some revisions made in 1842. So uh, we could say that Joseph Smith is the one who chose for us which one would become official and primary and most important. Gotcha. That's good um, because we sometimes see these accounts and we wonder why one tends to take on more emphasis um, than the others. Looking at these accounts, the whole group of them, and maybe just in general, we don't need to be super specific and pick out every single difference, but what are the the differences that draw attention uh, to scholars and to uh, folks who who are researching these accounts? What, What differentiates one account from the other? Well, the earliest one, 1832, uh, very clearly fits into a kind of a genre of conversion narratives that were very popular in Joseph Smith's time by evangelical converts. Uh, it's, it's several scholars besides me have noticed this. It, it fits. It's it's um, formulaic, and it also mentions just one divine being explicitly. Uh, that is, it says. The Lord opened the heavens upon me, and I saw the Lord. And I believe that Joseph there is probably referring to two people, but uh, many people believe that he's only talking about one divine being. And so they see that as a kind of a glaring difference between that account and later ones where he says he saw two personages. So the 1835 account is... um, the first place that he mentions the the vision being the first. And this makes sense because he's telling the story of how the Book of Mormon came forth. So in that series of events, which included several visions, then the first vision is the one of these two personages. In that account, Joseph says that one divine being appeared first and revealed the other one subsequently. And then uh, probably listeners know the 1838 nine account best. You'll sometimes hear 1838 when we know a draft of it was written, but we no longer have that draft. Or 1839 when the version of it that we have is dated. And uh, so that's why you'll hear those two numbers. That account is the one that's definitely designed to be full and complete and tell the whole story. Joseph finally pins down how old he was, the date, that sort of thing. Uh, People sometimes assume or expect fact that he should be able to know all those details. This is one of the assumptions people make. Have a vision of God. You don't ever forget the date. You don't forget how old you are, etc. That's not, that's just, those are assumptions that are not well founded in, in the study of how memory works. But this is the one that is clearly the one he worked hardest on to try to figure out what the actual story was. It also represents his um, interpretive memory best. That's the memory that we use or create to make sense of what's happened to us. And uh, usually the further you are from an event, the more interpretive memory you're going to have. So this is not the same as factual memory. Early in the spring of 1820, I had this vision. This is the part where you hear him say, yeah, it was like I was Paul before Agrippa, and it was like everybody was persecuting me. So he tells us what it seemed like to be him. That's interpretive memory, and we start to see a lot of that in that uh, canonized account in the Prograde Price. The other major uh, one that comes directly from Joseph is a 42 account in the Wentworth letter, and this is brief, and it's um, it's just a very terse but quite lovely account of the vision where he says he saw two beings and they exactly resembled each other in features and in likeness. As one who's read each of the accounts and looked at them, in realizing there are differences, as you point out, there's differences in, in Joseph trying to figure out what age he is. There's differences in whether the um, religious excitement um, – I know some of those who are, who are critical of the church will like to point out that the revivals didn't happen until a couple of years earlier, a couple of years later. There's the first account talking about him speaking to the Lord, and, and in essence – this perfect evidence of him speaking to both beings isn't present in that first account. 
can we strike some of this up to Joseph just being a 14-year-old boy when this happens, and now we're talking years later, and and what do we expect a 14-year-old to remember and how to how to contextualize that event? Yeah, I really believe that we can, and uh, we might even go further to say it, it's not just that he's a 14-year-old remembering, it's that he's a human being remembering. And we have some really simplistic notions of memory that are totally inaccurate, but but they're very popular. I mean, you know, you just, uh, everybody almost assumes what memory is like and how it works. And and people who study memory, both, uh, you know, scientifically and in literary um, ways, they know very well that memory doesn't work the way we think, like a recording machine or like a computer file that I just go back to and open every time I want to know exactly what happened. Memory is quite fluid. Memory develops. Memory constructs new versions of the same event and new meanings over time. That's going to freak some people out to talk to hear you know to hear me talk like that. They're going to wonder, oh, is the first vision really real? And and which version is the real one? And which one can I trust? And the answer to that is, absolutely, the vision's real. And and some unbelievers who are at least willing to take Joseph Smith seriously. Will, will think it just kind of happened inside of him. He imagined it. Believers like me will say, no, it really happened. It was a real historical event, spring of 1820. But um, if you're going to take memory seriously, you also are going to add to that that it's Joseph Smith's vision. And the only way I can get any access to it is through his memory. And the, way, the ways he remembers it are important. It's worthwhile to study what he remembers in 1830 and in 1832 and in 35 and in 39 and in 42, it's, it's um, legitimate for him, as every single one of your listeners does and I do, to look back into their past and to analyze it and to discover meaning in it. And you'll have different meanings 20 years out than you had uh, maybe the day of. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I was thinking as you were as you were answering the, the last question or two about memory and thinking about my own conversion story, and just as all of a sudden struck me that the way I remember my conversion story in some ways has been impacted by the ways in which I've told it over time. Oh, absolutely. It, it, yeah, so it is neat when we talk about memory. It's not as cut and dry. It's not as simple as we want to make it. It's it's just not a black and white thing. So let me ask you a question. Were you converted? Uh, yes, that I joined a, the church at the age of 17. Is that a real historical event? It was. Yes, it was. It actually happened? It but, did. But I bet if I studied it carefully and heard you tell it over a period of 15 years, I could find nuances and variations and even development in what you found meaningful about it. And, and, that and it's be, even more interesting. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah, that would be legitimate. That would be a real human being's memory. And, and, and uh, even the times I've told it, even the times I've told it, I've gotten done telling the story, and then you know, three hours later, sitting at home and going, oh, I forgot to say this, or oh, you know what? That's that wasn't the correct order. This happened before that happened. Yeah, you know the part in the Parlor Great Price account where Joseph Smith says he came home and and his mom says what the matter and I said I've learned for myself Presbyterianism isn't true and that sort of thing. Right. That that is exactly an example of what you just said. That wasn't in the original version. Uh Joseph added that in eighteen forty two. So there's a perfect example of one of those ex experiences you just mentioned where he originally has a flow of consciousness and then at some later point when he's revising it he says, Oh, I, I remember a piece that I I didn't remember that day or at least I didn't put in so his memory gotcha. works like yours works or like mine works. Gotcha. In what ways do the, the multiple accounts substantiate each other? Well, Joseph tells a consistent story. Now, critics are going to say, no, he doesn't, because he uses this word here and that word over there. And But that's nonsense. If you read them all carefully, he's telling a consistent story. The story is... He's a very frustrated teenager, and he's he's worried about his sinfulness. He's worried about the status of his soul. He's grown up in an evangelical culture, and this culture has conditioned him to worry about the nature of, of his soul. It comes in his home. It comes whenever he goes out to uh, meetings. It's just about everywhere. 
So that's the element, and uh, Joseph Smith searches to know what to do, and uh, he searches by listening to various ideas that are in his culture. He also reads the scriptures. One of the most consistent things he says is, that he found a tentative or a preliminary answer in the scriptures, that is to ask God if you lack wisdom. And that was a big deal to Joseph. Uh, as you study the accounts, he really, really emphasizes what a breakthrough that was. It's as if it, wa- it opened a new world for him to realize that maybe not all the answers are in the Bible. Maybe the Bible, um, the way the Bible serves you is by telling you that if you lack wisdom, go ask God. And so Joseph tries that and gets a revelation that resolves his crisis. He gets a a revelation that his standing before God is okay and that he'll learn more uh, as he goes along. It's a very, very comforting, reassuring vision. My soul was filled with love and joy, and I could rejoice for many days, he says, but nobody he couldn't find anybody to believe him. Neat. One of the questions that I'm on at the moment, so this is kind of a personal one that I'm just trying to trying to figure my way through, is why does Joseph Smith not seem to share – I mean, obviously we have the written accounts. We know that they're written as early as 1832, uh-huh. but it seems like we don't have any public sharing of these, these experiences until the early 1840s. Right. Why is that? It's a great question. I don't know the answer, but I'm – I'm very interested in it myself, as you are, and so I'll, I'll share some tentative thoughts with you. The first one that occurs to me is, why do you and I sometimes think there should be, right? Uh, why is it that we have this assumption that Joseph's going to come right home and tell everybody, going to knock on all the doors in the neighborhood and tell people? Vaughn Brody says famously, if if Joseph ever had an experience in 1820, it didn't even fasten itself on the minds of his family members. And that's quite true. There's no evidence that he tells his family. In fact, his account says, I, I, didn't, I couldn't find anybody that would believe. If he does tell his family, they evidently don't believe. What we do know from the historical record is that he tells a Methodist minister a few days after. And that minister really hammers him. And I believe that's the key to your question. Uh, A teenager who is very concerned about the status of his soul and who's uh, finally had a revelation that resolves his problem, excitedly takes that news to an authority figure, someone who has been influential in getting Joseph to think even about that possibility, and the guy rejects him flatly, strongly rejects him. And I think that that rejection is a very big key to understanding what what Joseph tells, when he tells, and how he tells it. Not only that he seems to keep it to himself for a very long time, but when he starts to tell it, I, uh, this is my theory now, this is not, these are not historical facts, but I'll tell you what my theory is. Sure. When he starts to tell it, he first tries in 1832 to tell it in a way that he thinks will be satisfying to that minister. He uses the minister's language, the minister's form. He tells it in a way that other evangelical converts tell their conversion stories in his time and place. I don't think that he is very satisfied with that himself. Uh, and the reason I think that is because we never hear that account again. Joseph just buries it. Even Oliver Cowdery, when he comes to write Joseph's story a couple of years later, doesn't have access to it. Orson Pratt seems to have access to it in the late 30s and early 40s, either to the, a, a copy of it or to um, Joseph's telling of it in those terms. I don't know which. Orson is a keen thinker. He may have heard Joseph tell it that way in the early 30s and then kind of kept it in mind. But as Joseph goes along, he kind of experiments with different ways of telling the same story until he happens upon a way that becomes a very Mormon way, and that's the, the prologate Price version. It's, it's where he locates his confusion and the divine answer, um, you know, a personal revelation to a nobody. That's a very Mormon idea, a loving God who responds to teenagers' Uh, prayers, and also it's a very Mormon idea in the sense that uh, he's rejected by everybody else. Uh, 
yeah, there's a persecution complex in that 1838-39 account. I'm not saying it's not a legitimate one. I'm not saying it's craziness, uh, but you can clearly tell that Joseph feels defensive and feels like he's been persecuted ever since he was an infant, which I think is more of of what it seemed like to him than what it was actually like. Uh, and you can also see that that persecution stems from from this revelation. So in some ways, that's Mormonism in a nutshell. God reveals at the beginning of the last dispensation that the other versions of Christianity have gone astray, and uh, they need to be reformed, re- restored. And Joseph shares that message, and it's not very popular, and he takes a lot of heat as a response. That's that's what I mean by a very Mormon way of remembering uh, the first vision. So I think Joseph experiments with it over time, first by sharing it publicly, getting flatly rejected, keeping it, therefore, to himself for a real long time. When he does try to tell it, he, he tells it in a way he hopes will be pleasing to the Methodist minister again. But the more he grows and gains confidence and gains a following, I think the more capable he becomes of telling his own version of the story, kind of his mature, what it meant to him as a prophet of a of a growing movement instead of uh, how he might have told it as a hurt teenager or even as a as one remembering what it was like to be a hurt teenager so that's my gotcha. theory um we're with Stephen Harpridge uh, author of Joseph Smith's first vision a guide to the historical accounts uh, my listeners sent in a couple of questions they wanted to ask you as well right. and uh, one of them was uh they made the point of acknowledging that you talk a lot about seeking rather than assuming how a person who has encountered difficult information, what would you say to them in regards to seeking answers without making assumptions? Oh, this is a great question. Uh, What we need to do is, first of all, learn the difference between a historical fact and assumptions or interpretations or theories about what those facts mean. So a good example would even be our conversation here today. For the first little while, I talked about historical facts, things that anybody could verify and that are the same whether you believe or don't believe. And then for the last chunk of time there, I went off on a theory, on an interpretation. I might be dead wrong about that. I can't prove it. It's not as same as a historical fact. Well, what happens is that people get confused about facts and interpretations. And most of the critics are confused. And some of them who know better are actually uh, doing the work of confusing other people. And they do it on purpose. And um, and that, to me, seems wrong. Uh, you know, whether you believe or don't believe, uh, I think all of us should be in the business of finding the truth and wanting to know what really the facts of the matter are. Now, once we know the facts, which is that there are are several accounts of the vision, they tell a generally consistent story, and they were written from 1832 to 1842 and so on. Once we know all the facts, we still don't know whether Joseph, I should say it this way, once we know the historical facts, we still don't know whether Joseph Smith is telling us the truth or not. And that requires, to know that requires a different epistemology. That's a fancy word for philosophy of knowing. You cannot find that answer by historical research. And some people would tell you that you can, but they, they can't be done. The only way to know whether God appeared to Joseph Smith or not is to learn that from God. And that's why uh, we have to, if we're sincere in our in our efforts to find the truth through faithful means, we have to be willing to add faith and revelation, seeking by the Spirit, uh, to our way of knowing. And I want to encourage people to do great historical homework, but not to think that their historical homework is ever going to get them all the way to the truth. It won't. So I I want to encourage people to add spiritual uh, knowing to their repertoire, to their their ability, to their ways and means of of coming to know things. And that's what I mean by seeking. Hard historical homework coupled with prayerful, humble, uh, diligent 
seeking from God for him to reveal his truths to us. Awesome. I uh, Just maybe a little personal bit for me. I, I've had spiritual experiences, and, and I've shared my story several times here on this podcast and other places, but yet I'm also – we're all different. We all come to, to this earth with different personalities and different makeups, and I'm I'm programmed to try and get to the bottom of things. I'm programmed to not be happy and not be settled right. until I come to some kind of empirical proof right. aside from the spiritual experiences – and so, Brother Harper, just from one, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree with it, and I've, I've come to those terms and understand it, and yet I, there are lots of us out there who struggle with being satisfied yeah. with a spiritual experience, and that may sound horrible to others. Well, we're worried um, about how horrible it sounds, right? In our culture, in Mormon culture, we're, we're a little worried about saying, you're quite a brave man to say that publicly, but I'm right there with you. And so are a lot of us, right? There are a lot of us who who fit that kind of personality type that you're describing. And that's okay. That is okay, right? We belong in the church as much as anyone else. It's as much our church as anyone else's church. Uh, we have faith. We're exercising faith. Um, and so I hope that people who fit that type that you just described, I hope they will keep on and I'd like to to help help them realize or encourage them to realize that there is no um, you have to exercise just as much faith in a certain sense in empirical so-called answers or rational answers as you do in spirit ones. Um, and the best epistemology, it seems to me, is a robust combination. It's the kind prescribed in the scripture. Seek learning by study and also by faith. Right? Intelligence is the glory of God. We have this wonderful um, scriptural uh, prescription for using our heads and our hearts. And I think that if we ever exclude one or the other, that's when we get in danger. I think the best kind of seeking is to work hard with our heads as well as simultaneously we we seek with our hearts with a willingness to think that there's someone smarter than us in the universe and he might benevolently reveal himself to us if we are humble and ask uh i like to combine that idea at the very same time we work hard with the intellectual faculties that he gave us to come to to know truth to me it seems dangerous to go too far either to either one of the ends of that spectrum. Uh, I like to live in the middle of it. You are a professor at BYU, correct? Yeah, I was. I'm not currently right now, but I was until okay. last September. When you were teaching there, what classes did you teach? I usually taught the Doctrine and Covenants and the early history of the church. Sometimes I would teach later periods of church history, and I would also teach the Book of Mormon from time to time. Then I spent a year in Israel teaching the Old and New Testaments, if you can believe that. Wow. Um, I had, and, and putting that kind of in context, I had a listener who wanted to ask you, he said, how do we find the right balance in our church classes between <laughs> teaching the doctrines of the kingdom, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, temple ordinances, the atonement, he even adds this, priesthood, grace, forgiveness, etc., and then the difficult or better stated, less well-known matters of church history, doctrine, and practice, such as polygamy, multiple first vision accounts, the book of Abraham, and some of the contextual issues with that, right. the Book of Mormon translation process, priesthood res restrictions, etc. How do we how do we balance all that? Teach truth, yet open people up to being a little more flexible, a little more a little less black and white with their views. Yeah. With all this information. Oh, this is a great question to which I don't have a good answer. Uh, I hope uh, this listener will find a great answer and let me know what it is. Um, okay. I, I do have some thoughts, although they're not directly to the question. I think that to do what is being asked there is to ask too much of Sunday school. Um, I have, uh, I and probably many of your listeners uh, share probably a similar approach to Sunday school, which is that it's a kind of a lonesome place and very often frustrating. Uh, but I have developed a feeling or view of it that I think is best. 
And that is to say, Elder Oak said this a few years ago, which I think is fantastic. It's kind of a paraphrase of John Kennedy's inauguration address where ask not so much what the church can do for you, but what you can do for the church. So I think if we go to church thinking, oh, crap, it's it's not going to be good for me today because nobody's going to talk about the stuff that I'm interested in and it's going to be superficial and shallow and you got a bunch of dinglings and then it's going to be a very unsatisfying experience, not sanctifying. But what if we went about it from a completely different angle, acknowledging the same set of facts, but what if we thought, you know, my goal in Sunday school today is to see what I can gain from others around me. You know, what what will be said or taught that I could use? And if you... It's very easy when we think like uh, we are inclined to do to get a very big head, very big sense of ourselves. I know some church history, you don't, and and so I'm smarter than you. It's it can be very hard to be edified in Sunday school with that attitude. So if we'll be more humble, we'll gain something valuable, and if we'll also go into it thinking, what can I do to be useful? to be of service? What can I do to, instead of thinking, I wish the lesson would serve me better, we might say, how could I serve this lesson better? And it may not come in the form of, um, you know, speaking out and pontificating to show everybody how much we know. It may come in the form of sitting pretty silently and offering a prayer for the teacher who's maybe struggling through. And it may come in those kind of ways. I think if we'll try to be humble disciples of Christ and not as worried about when will the whole church learn finally church history that at least for me that has seemed to help my my issues with Sunday school right I, I realize you're you're speaking to a great extent we shouldn't go into class looking to open everybody's minds to these deep issues at the same time any thoughts on planting seeds here and there yeah. uh, or if something comes up that's really a bad assumption right. that it's going to set up the whole class for a fall? I mean, do you yeah, have your thoughts there? I think we're responsible to do what we can. And there's no rule. There's no, there's no, I can't make a list. People will just have to follow the Holy Ghost, you know. Yeah. There will be a time when you might have to make a pretty uncomfortable uh, stand and say, that's not right. My wife is actually much better at this than I am. But, um the only way we'll know that is when the Spirit leads us to do right. And the only way to be ready for that is to be living right and seeking the Spirit in our lives. So, um, you know, we do. We are obligated to teach the truth. I used to say a prayer before I went to class every day. Um, and it was that I would teach the truth in love by the power of the Holy Ghost. And I think it's crucial that we don't just do... just again, all those elements are necessary. You know, any one of us could walk into a Sunday school class and teach the truth and do it in a way that would be like a knife, you know, like a weapon against the the, the children of God. That's immoral. So it's not enough to teach the truth. We have to teach the truth in love, you know, the right motivation and by the power of the Holy Ghost. And so that's a prayer that has helped me. I'm not, I, I, I sound so self-righteous and sanctimonious, I'm sure. I don't mean to sound that way. I've struggled with this uh, same question a lot. And so these are just some of the thoughts and uh, I've had along the way and some of the things that have been successful. Believe me, I've I've uh, done my fair share of not teaching the truth in love by the power of the Holy Ghost. And it never works as well as we do it the right way. No, that's a beautiful point. I, I hope people don't feel that way. I hope people see what you're saying, that essentially we shouldn't go into class to teach truth at the expense of hurting faith, right? but rather teach truth to help faith grow. Yeah, and even even hurting other people, you know, I mean, right. you could, a lot of your listeners could make their Sunday school teacher look like a, like a dope. That's right. no good. That won't do any no. good. No, because then people come in the next week and they're not going to take that person seriously. Yeah. These people don't volunteer for the most part. They're trying as best they can to do what God wants them to do, and they work hard at it. And, they, you know, we don't get callings often because we're great at it. We get it because it will require us to stretch, and that requires the rest of the saints to sustain us as we falter and struggle along and, and do our best. 
I'm I'm grateful when people do that for me, and I want to try to do it for others. Amen. Um, last question from a listener, and I want to finish with just two quick things. They uh, they ask. Obviously, we need to provide people with good information from within the context of faith after they encounter some challenging but generally accurate history. Uh, how do we best deal with feelings of betrayal or loss of trust that often accompany that kind of discovery? Oh, this is a good question. I really, I don't know that I have a great answer to it, but it's a very important question. You know, um, I think what you're doing, Bill, is probably the best answer. There needs to be safe places inside the church for people who feel like they've been lied to or betrayed or or had their you know the rug yanked out from under them there needs to be safe places they can go to to talk to be listened to without being dismissed as apostate or somehow you know flawed deeply fundamentally flawed so your your little community that you're building here I think is a big deal as far as that goes and uh, there should be places like this where where people can feel safe asking their questions and uh, not having answers necessarily. You know, there should be a place where people can go where they don't feel like they have to say, I know the church is true. What if right. somebody just wants to say, I sure hope it's true. Where can they go? And uh, we need to create uh, and, you know, do what we can to foster the communities where that's an okay thing. If that's where we are as Latter-day Saints, that's okay. Just stay in. Just just keep it up. Just stick with it. Did you? Everybody uh, hopefully heard Elder Holland speak in general conference. This is what he was saying. You know, if you can't yet say I know, then come with me. Lean on me. Stick with me. And so he's definitely, um, along with others, cultivating that kind of community, and that will lead to healing if there's a safe place inside the church where people like that can feel like they can be true to themselves without um, without feeling like they're unwelcome at the church, that will go far toward the kind of redemptive work that you're talking about. Yeah, we, we certainly need a lot more awareness of, of what it means to have faith, that that's not necessarily a perfect knowledge, that there are those who have doubts, and, yep. and the faith with which they move within the church sometimes maybe even is greater oh, yeah. because they're moving along by having those. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very thankful for, uh, you know, my, my parents were good at this. And so I feel like I'm extremely blessed in that regard, but I know that's not true for everybody. I know a lot of people have had very, very damaging or hurtful or harmful interactions and where they've been made to feel unwelcome in the church. Um, I guess what we can do if we feel like we're in that boat, let's not add to it. Let's sometimes we want to be victims. We want to be mad at the Sunday school teacher or the bishop or whoever. And there's no room for that either. Um, right. Right. If she wants to make it right. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I would tell people, I guess also be authentic I had a, a student who, who truly struggled. With, you know, do I have a testimony? Can I say I know? And and they were in that position of trying to figure out and not not being able to authentically say I know. And I wanted to make sure they knew that was okay. But after I got to know them quite well and I felt like I had a read on them, I got a little more bold and I said, "You're a believer. You want to believe." And I know that because that's how I am. I I like having faith. It makes me happy to have faith. And I hope I hope people out there will feel that way too. You, just like you can pretend to you know have more testimony than you do, and you can also pretend to have less. And there's a kind of there's a community of kind of academic or scholarly detachment where it's fashionable to. Um, you know, to be to be a little hard edged to the church, to be a little critical and analytical and some of that is just as much pretense as getting up and saying I know if I don't. So I guess I would say to people, just be authentic. If if you want to believe, believe. And hang out with other people who believe and love to believe. And it's very nurturing. Very nurturing. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um you 
have contributed and worked on uh, the Joseph Smith Papers project, correct? Yes, sir. Uh, just maybe in a few words, uh, your thoughts on that whole project. Oh, it's absolutely great. Uh, you know, um, I suppose there was a time and place where you could say the church is not really doing much to get out the real history and so on, but uh, you can't say that anymore. The church is spending enormous amounts of money and very, very finest talent. I'm, I don't work on the project directly anymore, so I can say that. I'm not talking about myself, but the very finest talent uh, that we've got for that kind of work in the church is devoted to it. Uh, the volumes are rolling off the press, and they are absolutely fantastic, and it will require now uh, all scholars in and out of the church, if they're going to pretend to be a scholar, they'll have to be very conversant with that historical record, and it's, it's fantastic work. It's going to be neat to see 20 years from now, 30 years from now, the impact that the last five to ten years of openness and discussion and yeah. um, just, you know, considering these other kinds of issues and the deeper impact of them, what kind of impact that's going to have on the general knowledge of the average member in the church uh, going forward. Um, we're with Stephen Harper today, author of Joseph Smith's First Vision, A Guide to the Historical Accounts. Uh, where can they find your book, uh, Steve? Oh, Deseret published it. So Deseret Bookstores, DeseretBook.com. I don't know. I don't know where else. Probably on Amazon. Okay. So. Sure. Um, it was kind of neat. I live out in Ohio, and uh, my library is part of several, uh, I don't know, 50 to 100 libraries in Ohio. And uh, your book was an easy find through that system. So I know your oh, book's great. all over the place. I uh, just want to finish with, We've talked about the first vision today. We've talked about faith crisis on some level and, and some of your thoughts uh, for those who are struggling, and I, I really appreciate them. I think, I think you said some things that were very insightful. I'd like to give you a chance just to finish by uh, just either sharing your testimony or sharing uh, any other kind of spiritual advice that, uh, that you might feel impressed to do at this time. <laughs> wow, how about that? Uh, well, I'll tell you, I just uh, feel grateful for what you're doing and for what uh, folks like you are doing. And um, I just feel thankful to be part of this community, to be invited to be part of uh, people who are interested in the history of the church and want to know what really happened as best we can recover it and and, you know, feel invested in it. And I want to help in any way that I can. I know that uh, from the beginning of the church until now, there have been people who felt like they, you know, got deceived or got, um, you know, tricked and so on. And my heart aches for them and I want to, to help them. I I have my own experiences with the gospel that lead me to believe it's true. I believe it in the marrow of my bones. And um, I want to share that with everybody that I can. I I uh, I want to be open and willing to help people who don't see things exactly the same way I do. And uh, and so and I hope all of us will feel that way, where it's okay to be different if we approach the faith a little differently, or if we're struggling with it. That's okay as long as uh, you know we in Israel. I taught over there for a year at the Jerusalem Center, and we, we had three rules in class. These, I guess this is the most wise thing I could say, so I'll leave you with these three rules. And we were partly contrasting with the um, elaboration of kind of rules that come out of the Old Testament, or at least traditions that go back to the Old Testament. And So I wanted to make a contrast that and get really to the heart of the Old Testament as well as the New. And so we would say that our class rules are in the Bible. And uh, the third rule is don't do anything stupid. That was our rule for the semester. And then we decided that we'd have to find the first and second rule as we went along. And so as we did, we discovered that the rule, first rule of life is love God. And the second rule is love your neighbor as yourself. And the third one, then, is don't do anything stupid. So I think that with just pretty much those three rules, you can live a happy and wonderful life. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing 
Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it. Mount of Thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by Thy great help I've come, and I hope by Thy good pleasure. Safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Precious blood. That day when freed from sinning, I shall see Thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing Thy sovereign grace! Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.